Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The legal advocacy group Arch City Defenders has established quite a name for itself, especially since the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson. The organization is a nonprofit civil rights law firm. It bills itself as combating the criminalization of poverty and state violence against poor people and people of color. Arch City Defenders was founded less than a decade ago. Late last year, co-founder and then executive director Thomas Harvey announced his resignation. Harvard Law graduate Blake Strode was named to succeed him. He's only 30 years old, is a former tennis pro, and he grew up in St. Louis. Blake Strode joins me in studio. Great to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Does having grown up in St. Louis give you any advantage, do you think, to the job that you have now? Well, I certainly think it gives me context. Um, You know, this is my home. I've had a lot of experiences here. Uh, A lot of my family is here, spread out sort of over the city and county area. Um, And so I think my understanding of of the issues in the region is is informed by all of those life experiences. And there are plenty of issues uh, to contend with here, aren't there? Sure, there absolutely. I mean, we focus, of course, on issues that plague our clients who are uh, overwhelmingly poor and people of color. And so that's, you know, you got our mission statement perfectly there at the outset. We focus on combating criminalization of poverty and, and state violence that's targeted against those communities. You know, I have to ask you, uh, most Harvard graduates, <laughs> law school graduates, go on to big firms and do uh, do the money thing, if you don't mind my putting it that way. Sure. You opted uh, against that life. Why? Well, I, you know, I went to law school with um, an idea of the kind of work that I wanted to do, uh, and it was never a, a private firm path. Uh, I was always interested in social justice issues, racial justice issues. Um, I was interested in civil rights. I sort of was brought up in a home where, where the civil rights struggle was a huge part of kind of the narrative that surrounded me. And so that was always what drove me and what I was passionate about. And it just became a matter of, of looking for ways to do that and to engage in that work. And so I was very lucky to find a place like Arch City Defenders. You, you and your family have had some firsthand experience with some of the civil rights and social justice issues here in this community, haven't you? Sure. Well, I mean, we, you know, I think like many families here and um, particularly people of color in in this region, I know many people and have many people in my own family and immediate family that have had issues with uh, law enforcement, for example, um, issues with over ticketing. Uh, My own, my father uh, had an issue where he was trying to get into our home and had locked himself out and um, a neighbor called, and, and next thing he knew, there were police with guns pointed at him. And this was—we were living in Berkeley at the time. Uh, and this is something I, you know, I mentioned this recently in an interview, and um, I, I didn't really come to reflect on that uh, incident until much later in life, when I began sort of learning more about uh, law enforcement and and how communities of color in particular are policed and how there's sort of an automatic suspicion that attaches to many people of color and especially men of color. Um, and I certainly think about that incident differently now than, than I used to when it was just sort of a, uh, a strange and concerning story with my father. Now I see it as really a part of you know, this continuum of experiences that many people of color have had here I, and around the country. I think of Professor Gates in, in Boston, mm-hmm. same kind of thing when he was trying to get into his own house right, and the cops sure. uh, swooped in. Sure. So it, it happens and it happens mm-hmm. fairly frequently. Apparently. It does. It does. It absolutely does. And 
Um, you know, I, I see it as an institutional issue, you know, as, as, as you said, it happens fairly regularly. So this isn't really a matter of bad apples or something like that. I have no reason to believe that the, the officers involved in this incident with my dad that happened many years ago were mm-hmm. acting maliciously, but I think there's clearly something um, in the assumptions that are made and the, the ways in which people are incentivized to behave within um, our, our culture of policing that, that makes it more likely for something like that to occur with certain people, with black people, than yeah. with others. St. Louis has a, a, a reputation uh, for the, the polar, racial polarization mm-hmm. here and as one of the worst cities in, in the country. Do you, do you see it that way? And, and have you seen anything change recently? Well, I, I guess I don't know whether, it's, um, whether it actually is worse than other places. I do know that we have some statistics on police killings, for example, per capita, and uh, I think St. Louis is first or second on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we in recent years have been the, the uh, focus of a lot of national attention because of the killing of Mike Brown and um, mm-hmm. some other high-profile local police killings. Uh, and and I think in some ways we are having an explicit discussion that's not being had in other parts of the country. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's a credit to the people who have taken to the streets, the people who have agitated, the people who have demanded that we talk about race and class and segregation. Uh, and so we, we do that here more than I think some other places that in fact have the same issues. And we have to do a lot more of it because it, some people just aren't comfortable with those, um, with those discussions, but it's the only way that we actually can try to move forward and address the, the structural and institutional racism that plagues us. Well, as they say, it, it takes two to tango. And, and it's one thing to raise the level of consciousness on the streets. It's another thing to have action follow that will correct some of the problems. And that doesn't seem, not much of that seems to have happened since uh, 2014 and Michael Brown's death. Well, I think you're right about that. I I think there was uh, a lot of um, action or at least reaction immediately following um, the, the killing of Michael Brown and the Ferguson uprising. Um, and a lot of people were scrambling to try to get their minds around what was happening, why people were so angry, um, what was sort of underlying a lot of this frustration that clearly had been present for years, for decades. Um, And since then, the urgency seems to have faded. I I arrived back in St. Louis in fall of 2015. And even then, it was there was still a palpable sense that people were reacting. They were reacting to the Ferguson Commission. The Ferguson report was being produced at that time. And there were all of these commitments made to honor that report and honor the calls in the report. And uh, now we're in 2018, and I hear a lot less of that. Yeah. Over the years, I've observed, and you probably have too, that there have been a lot of studies and a lot of reports that have been issued on the situations, the kinds of things that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And there's an initial reaction where there is some conversation, then the report gets tossed in a drawer. The drawer is is shut, and and life goes on pretty much as it had been. Yeah, and it's funny because I... I can think back to 2015, hearing a lot of people saying, "We're not going to do that." You know, this is this isn't going to be that kind of situation where we do all of these, you know, public mm-hmm. uh, hearings and discussions and reports, and then we go back to business as usual. And sure enough, here we are in 2018, and I think a lot of people feel the way you do that. That's exactly what happened, and we now have. Uh, on multiple levels, you know, on the the local level, we have lots of pushback by local court administrators and police uh, officials about the the reforms that were called for at the time. On the state level, we have 
uh, a state senator proposing to do away with certain parts of Senate Bill 5, which changed the way uh, that municipal courts operate. And then, of, of course, on the federal level, we have uh, our, our new attorney general um, rescinding a guidance letter that changed some of those rules. So it's it's a, a multi-level, I think, attack on even the, the modest changes that were made in the wake of Ferguson. Yeah, the whole process has not gotten a lot of help from the state legislature. No, I would say that's true. We're talking with Blake Strode, who is the new executive director of uh, Arch City Defenders. We have to take a break. We'll do that now. Come back and continue the conversation. If you'd like to be a part of it, we'd love to uh, to have you call in. 382-8255 is the number. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email at talk at stlpublicradio.com. Org, or if you would prefer, send us a tweet at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to our conversation with Blake Strode, the new executive director of Arch City Defenders. Blake, what do you see? Uh, you're relatively new in this job, just a couple of months. What, what, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing our city defenders at the moment? Well, I think we touched on it in part. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pushback happening to, to what was a brief period of, of real energy behind making systemic change in the region. And now what we see are, are uh, the forces of the status quo are sort of re-entrenching yeah. themselves. Yeah. And um, I think our fight on things like debtors' prisons and fines and fees uh, is just going to get harder. Um, I think that that the status quo in policing in the region has also really dug in um, and and fights on things like uh, excessive force and police misconduct and unlawful arrests are just going to get harder. And they... There's support from the federal government for uh, anything goes approach in law enforcement. I mean, explicit statements by the president that you can rough somebody up a little bit when you're arresting them. I think all of that has a cultural impact, uh, and it makes the lives of our clients that much harder every day. It makes their experiences that much worse, uh, and it makes the fight that much tougher. Do you, do you look for any kind of meaningful change with the appointment of a new police chief in St. Louis? Well, I, you know, I, it remains to be seen, I think. No. I was concerned um, by comments that were made, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, about how there's going to be uh, focusing in certain communities on low-level ordinance violations, on no registration, on improper plates as a means of ticking up the p- police presence in those neighborhoods. Our experience has been that that's precisely the wrong approach, that that actually leads to criminalizing people for their poverty. Um, it leads to highly racialized policing and over-incarceration. Uh, so, I, you know, we're going to have to be very mindful of, of the kind of rhetoric that's being used um, and the kinds of policy that attaches to that rhetoric because I, I, I am concerned about that. You know, I, I, I read uh, with interest uh, re- recently kind of a, a, a to and froing between you and the new public safety director, Jimmy Edwards, on the issue of black-on-black crime. What, what is your concern with what he had to say on Martin Luther King Day about that? Well, one concern uh, was that he took the opportunity of Martin Luther King Day to make this particular point. Uh, I think uh, I know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the great truth-tellers in our history about structural racism, about institutional violence. Um, 
he understood context. And to scapegoat black people in St. Louis on that occasion just seemed to me to be really uh, improper. It seemed to be a, a, the wrong occasion to make that kind of a point. But beyond that, I also think it's just wrong. I think it's misleading. Um, I, he said something to the effect of that's on us or that's on you speaking to black mm -hmm. people in St. Louis. And I think that lets everyone off the hook too much. It's not on any one group of people in St. Louis, and it's certainly not on black people alone. Black people did not create the conditions in which they live. They didn't create the institutions that that led to distressed neighborhoods and uh, joblessness and substance abuse. Those aren't the sort of personal responsibility narrative that goes with that. Um, I think it's just misleading, and it actually is all of our responsibility to do something about those conditions. Well, this is there's a numbers game involved with that, too, which mm -hmm. a lot of people are referring to. We uh, have some calls, and Joe calling from St. Louis may get into that part of, of this particular uh, piece of the discussion, so let's bring sure. him in. Joe, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, thanks. First of all, I want to compliment the, the person, uh, Blake, who's on there uh, in just his whole demeanor and his uh, thoughts when he's talking. He seems to be looking at every angle of the situation, which I think is really good. Reasonable, thoughtful comments were made. Um, one thing I wanted to say, though, Don, was that you said something about St. Louis, and I'm paraphrasing you, being uh, the most polarized city in the country or one of the most polarized. Mm -hmm. And what I think is, is a little dangerous, and then... And then Blake said something about, well, I don't know about that, which was good, because I don't know what study was that based on. And then he mentioned looking at, you can look at police shooting per capita or different, you know, studies. But first of all, I think St. Louisans are often really a little too hard on ourselves. Certainly we have problems here um, that need to be addressed. But the other thing is, I think you almost need to take whatever data you're looking at and then combine it with the greater metropolitan area, include St. Louis County, perhaps per capita police shootings for the city of St. Louis might be higher or the highest. I don't know in the nation. I really don't know what it is. But if you compare it with the greater metropolitan area, then it maybe falls a bit more in a norm with other areas. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and you hear that a lot when we're mentioned as a dangerous city and then the leaders come out and say, well, you have to, you know, you have to look at that statistic and, and realize it might be skewed by the number of people in our political subdivision here. And um, I was pleased that, Blake, you, you didn't just jump on the bandwagon with that comment and, you know, said, you know, just said what you did. And, and I think it's important to look at all the data. Joe, th uh, thanks a lot. Th thank you for the call, Joe. And good luck uh, yeah. in your new position. Thank you. N numbers can be a problem. They yeah, can be sure. interpreted differently uh, in, in different ways. Yeah, and uh, thank you for the compliments, first of all. I hope you don't take them back in this response. Because um, <laughs> I, I think you do make a good point. And I think part of what you are pointing to um, is a structural reality that we have here in St. Louis uh, that has created very concentrated poverty, concentrated uh, violent crime, uh, we know and can predict where it will happen and who it will impact. And uh, that also is is our doing. That is, that's the result of collective efforts to create the region as it exists today. Uh, and we all, you know, anyone who lives here knows you can drive 20 minutes in one direction and be in beautifully manicured uh, subdivisions, 
plenty of jobs for people who live there, fresh food options, um, really lovely places to live, and you can drive 20 minutes in another direction and be in really distressed communities with uh, abandoned properties and higher rates of crime and lack of jobs and opportunity and uh, higher substance abuse, rates of substance abuse, et cetera. And the, the race of the people in that first community are going to be overwhelmingly white and the race of the people in the second community are going to be overwhelmingly black. And that's something we have to look at as being constructed. You know, there's a sort of uh, a willingness by some to say, well, what did those people do to land themselves there? And I think that's precisely the wrong question. The right question is, what did we do that we created a situation where you could predict things by race that mm -hmm. accurately? Uh, and that's the question. That's the type of question we really try to tackle in our work. You know, I think of the uh, "For the Sake of All" report uh, that mm -hmm. was put out by Jason yeah. Parnell and his colleagues, and one of the most striking numbers that was presented there was the fact that in almost adjacent zip codes, you can have an 18-year uh, disparity yeah. in lifespans yeah. uh, between. And basically, we're talking about the poor neighborhoods and the more affluent uh, that you right. just suggested. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very disturbing. Back to the phones. Let's uh, bring in Ron calling from St. Louis. Ron, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, yes, as a person that works with a lot of youth, <clears throat> and I look at the, the, the problems with the criminal justice system and the problems in St. Louis, and well, one of the things that I would see is, number one, is always relates to jobs. And then we also have to look at, at the, the home. We need better uh, home training some of these young people. When you look at any statistics, it tells you if a child is going to end up in a, with a felony conviction, typically there's no parent, no, no father at the home, and maybe no mother. They, they typically can't read past the eighth grade level by the time they're 14 or 15. And if you go to almost any prison in the United States, and this, co and this covers African Americans, Hispanics, and whites, uh, those are the major predictors of whether they're going to end up with, with a felony co conviction in, in, um, in a state or a federal institution. So we have to do a better job of prevention. And uh, in relationship to tickets and fines, people get tickets and fines, they should be paid, but the, the amount should be reduced greatly, and they sh should always have an option of doing community service. But we must reduce crime in some of these communities if we want them to thrive economically. Thanks for the call, Ron. Yeah. So I, I agree with a lot of what you said, Ron. I think part of what you're pointing to is uh, context, that context informs what we understand to be crime, that crime doesn't sort of exist in a vacuum, that there, it's socially created. You know, there's this term criminogenic, which suggests that there are conditions which we can then accurately predict will lead to more crime. Uh, and, and that's where the priority, uh, in my view, should really be on funding social services, should be on social investment instead of punishment for people who have predictably landed in a scenario where they're in criminogenic environments. Um, and to the second point about, about fines and fees, I, I think you're also right that we should take into account people's um, ability to pay fines and fees as they're assessed and when there is no ability to pay. So frankly, most of the people we represent, uh, and, and my predecessor Thomas Harvey was, was always fond of saying this, there's no amount of fine that, that could be uh, effective in sanctioning them into being able to correct that behavior. If there's, if the problem is you can't afford car insurance, there's no fine that's going to make you be able to afford car insurance. And it's sort of illogical to even think of attaching a monetary penalty to an offense that is rooted in that person's inability to pay in the first place. But that's exactly what we do. And we do it in local courts all over this region. And it leads many people to having warrants, time spent in jail, away from their families, taking parents out of the home, to your point, Ron, 
uh, and really creating and exacerbating a lot of the very uh, social problems that created the problem in the first place. And Thomas Harvey has gone on to work on the uh, on system, the bail system, uh, That's right. a, a national project actually, which uh, trying to revise that to the point where people don't have to be stuck in in jail or prison for. Uh, Extended lengths of uh, periods of time. That's right. That's yeah. period of time. What can Arch City defenders do about any of this? I understand what mm-hmm. you do with regard to, uh, you know, helping people, uh, legal advocacy, and helping them, in, in, you know, within the criminal justice system. But you're helping what some might call victims here. It's not changing mm-hmm. the system, or is it, or can it? Uh, well, I'd like to think it is. So th- there's uh, really four areas of our work. Um, one that you're pointing to is the direct representation um, and sometimes direct criminal defense piece that mm-hmm. we are uh, uh, sort of doing triage for people who are in that crisis mm-hmm. situation of facing charges of um, having been criminalized for their poverty and trying to uh, resolve those cases, abate fines or reduce fines or get cases um, completed with community service, all sorts of things on the on the direct representation front. But then we also engage in systemic litigation that attacks many of these um, practices and systems that are creating these problems for our clients. Uh, And we also engage in policy advocacy to try to change some of the rules. A lot of what we've talked about today are just the structures and rules that Mm -hmm. were set up um, to create the conditions uh, in which people find themselves. And then the last area is is through collaboration with our partners. And we're fortunate to have some really great um, community partners, uh, community organizations, advocates in this region that uh, have been on the ground doing this work for years. Uh, And we know that these aren't primarily legal problems. The legal problems are a piece of it, but uh, there are social problems, there are problems of poverty, there are political problems. And so we partner with other other advocates in order to have a more multi-pronged approach. Another caller, Gregory, joins us from St. Louis. Gregory, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, How you doing? How you uh, gentlemen doing today? Doing well. I, I I had a question. Uh, I, uh, I live in the city of St. Louis and I've been a first time felony, uh, since 1998. And I know that governor Nixon had passed the law back in 2016, uh, but it didn't go into effect until 2018, uh, January the 1st about first uh, uh, time, uh, felonies, nonviolent, uh, offenders that uh, would be made easier to get their, uh, felony conviction expunged. And I've been trying to get in contact with uh, different uh, uh, defense attorneys and uh, different law officers, and nobody uh, uh, was willing to take that case uh, as far as trying to help me or help uh, individuals try to get their uh, nonviolent uh, felony or fun. I was just wondering if your office is kind uh, of handle uh, stuff like that. Yeah, so I would, I'm sorry, I forgot your name, but I would. Gregory. Gregory. Uh, I would invite you definitely to, to reach out to our office. Of course, I can't guarantee we, I can tell you we uh, always get a lot more applications for our services than we can take clients. But um, I would encourage you to reach out to our office and uh, let us know what the, you know, what the legal problem is. I do know that the expungement law was changed, as you said, I think in 2016. I don't know all of the details of that law, but this is, of course, a really important issue that you're pointing to, which is that collateral consequences attach lifelong to uh, felony convictions and um, can can really impact a person's life in jobs, in housing, in in 
uh, access to uh, public funds in all sorts of different ways. And so, of course, this is a really important issue. It is an issue uh, that we do work on, um, and, and you're, of course, welcome to reach out to us and apply. Well, let's bring in Bill and Creve Core. Make it quick, uh, uh, Bill, if you would, please. We're running out of time. Absolutely. Uh, is there a way that uh, individuals can become involved? It seems like it's uh, limited uh, to uh, to attorneys in terms of being able to uh, uh, help in the community. Sure. Uh, so there's a number of ways. Of course, we always welcome people to, to support our organization. We uh, survive in part on the generosity of, of supporters, um, and you can find more information about that at our website, archcitydefenders.org. Uh, but in terms of being involved in the advocacy piece, we're part of what I pointed to was was collaboration with partners. We're engaged in a number of um, projects and, and campaigns right now with other partners uh, and always looking for volunteers and looking for, and, and you don't have to be a lawyer in order to volunteer. Um, and if that's something you'd be interested in, I would also encourage you to reach out to us um, and we can find ways to, to sort of plug you in as, you're, as you would like. Very quickly, if time's running away, uh, what are the criteria that you use in selecting your clients? Well, it's, it's somewhat complicated. We have um, uh, referral relationships with certain social service providers in the area. Uh, the only criteria really for our direct services is that uh, we, we provide attorneys to people that wouldn't be able to, uh, pro to afford attorneys otherwise. Um, so there's no, you know, there's no strict uh, criteria beyond that really, but we really try to prioritize people who would be uh, in, in dire straits without our services. Okay, I can't believe this call, DDS, where did you go to high school? <laughs> it's, a, it's the St. Louis thing. I went to Pattonville, Pirates, <laughs> Proud Pirates. All right, now we know yeah. the, the burning question of the day. Yeah. Blake Strode, thank you so much for being thank with us. You. Uh, good luck to you and the job with our thank city defenders. Thank you Good to have you. Archived versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh. Okay.